Good morning, everyone. My name is uh, Stephen Murray. I've been coming here to Windsor for the last 18 months or so. And I'd like to welcome everybody to today's service. It's great to see so many people here, people from so many different backgrounds, young and old, and people from everywhere. It's especially nice to welcome back Thomas. I don't know Thomas, but he's here with his wife, Monica, and family today. And he's here in Windsor for the first time in 28 years. And he's now based in Rhode Island, so it's very good to see him here as well. I'd also like to give a special welcome to Alan Wilson. Alan Wilson comes to us and he's going to preach to us later on today. Alan has been involved in various work, uh, various works in, in Switzerland, in Neo in Switzerland, and also in Port Stewart Baptist. And at the moment he's doing a bit of teaching, both in the Baptist College and in Irish Baptist College, completing a doctorate, and also here with us today to preach. So he's a busy man, so thank you for coming with us today. I would like to open today's service by reading some verses from Psalm 103. And it says this. Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you his servants who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. We're going to begin today's service with a, a hymn which is based on this psalm. It's not a paraphrase of the psalm. It's not the psalm just word for word, but it's a meditation on it, and it helps us reflect on God's goodness and God's grace to us. It's a great hymn. It's got a melody which kind of captures the soaring lyrics. It tells us how God is slow to chide and swift to bless, how he tends and spares us like a father, and how we have been ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. And I think for that line alone, this, this hymn really speaks to me. Ransomed, healed, restored, and forgiven. And really, that leaves us with no option but to praise him. Not because we're forced to, but because of gratitude, because we want to come to God and worship him. So let's stand together and sing, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven.
Please have a seat. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we can call you our Father, that we're able to come to you, that you are our Father in heaven. And thank you for the words we've been singing, which speak to us about how Father-like you tend and spare us, how you gently hold us. And we thank you that we can come to worship you today. And we pray that as we come to you, that we'll come in a spirit of humility, that we'll be able to settle ourselves from the busyness of our lives, that we'll be able to come in here and that we'll be able to meet together and worship you. And I pray that our focus will be very much on you during this service. We pray for everything that will happen today, for the work in junior church and in transit, and also for Alan as he comes to speak to us. And we pray that you would speak to each one of us and that you would be transforming our lives even as we're here today. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Now, I wonder if you can tell me what some of these pictures have in common. There are four things here, and they've all got something in common. Now, I'm a teacher by trade, so I'm used to forcing people to answer questions if they don't want to. But obviously, it's better to have volunteers. Anybody like to volunteer a reason why these four things have something in common? What do we have there? What does anybody see? We've got grace notes. Thank you very much. So we've got those little notes there which are called grace notes. That's the first one. Grace is the thing that unites them. These things have all got something to do with grace. So the house that you see there, what's the house? Graceland, who, which, and who lived there? Elvis lived there as well. And then we've got a picture of a, of a lady here. Who's that? Grace Kelly, who was an actress and also then uh, Prince, uh, Princess Grace of Monaco. And then we've got a man who's saying grace at the table. Now, of course, these things have got something in common. They all have grace in, in, in them somewhere. But actually, they're nothing to do with the kind of grace that we're going to talk about today. We'll be talking about grace later on, God's grace later on. I know Alan's going to share something about that with us. But I thought we would pause and think about grace for a moment uh, when the children are still here. Do you know what grace is? I don't know if I could come up with a perfect definition. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I couldn't. But really, what happens with grace is, it's a bit like this. I know that children in school, they're always very keen that people get what they deserve, maybe particularly in primary school. Nobody likes it when somebody gets something that they don't deserve, or they think that everybody needs to get what they deserve. But in fact, God gives us something all that we don't deserve at all, and that's his love. The best and greatest example of this is, of course, Jesus. And that's what grace is. And I think one way which we can remember what grace is, is to remember a few verses from the Bible. We talked about this last week, and I, know, I don't know if the children were in when our speaker last week, Edwin Yurt, mentioned about earworms. And those are things which get into your head, and particularly with songs, and when a melody goes round and round your head, and it's a song you can't forget, that's something which really helps you learn. And anybody who's been in any of my language classes will know that I use songs to try and help people learn languages. In fact, the word earworm comes from a German word, which is Ohrwurm, which talks about a little worm which gets into your head and won't get out again. And I thought, to help us learn about grace, we would pick up something else from the psalm, which we've been reading, Psalm 103. And it's a few verses from this psalm. And it says this, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He does not treat us as our sins deserve, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And we're going to pick up these words in another song. These 
words, as I say, are found in Psalm 103. It's not the only place that we find God described as gracious and compassionate in the Bible. We find it also in Exodus when Moses sees, uh, sees God and God is describing himself as gracious and compassionate. But we want to sing these, these words now in the song. We go through the words a few times and hopefully as you go through these then you'll remember these and you'll be able to think about them later on in the week. So let's stand together and sing The Lord is Gracious and Compassionate.
seats. If God shows his love and his grace to us, then one way we can respond is to show God's love to other people. Every year we take part in something which is called Operation Christmas Child, and you'll find leaflets in your pews this morning which give you a little bit more information about that. Operation Christmas Child is something which is run by a charity called the Samaritan's Purse, uh, a charity which takes its vocation really from the parable of the Good Samaritan, and Jesus called us at the end of that parable to go and do likewise. They encourage people to show their love for others by packing shoeboxes and sending them around the world. And the way they put it is connecting hearts. The love that's put into packing the shoebox is expressed when the child opens a box and realizes that somebody has put thought into it. And if you look on their website, you can see how many answers to prayer there are in terms of those shoeboxes, how people have opened the shoeboxes to find things that they really needed and things which brought them great joy and great delight. Also on their website, you can see some remarkable stories of the shoeboxes and the people who have really put a lot of effort into it. And I was amazed to find out that over the past 40 years that this operation has been in force, that 100 million children have been reached, 100 million shoeboxes have been distributed around the world. So this is a fantastic thing for us to be able to be involved in. And I'd just like you to watch this short video about Operation Christmas Child. examples of things that people can put into shoeboxes. And I was wondering if I could have a volunteer, a boy and a girl, who would like to come up and open these boxes and show the people in church what's in the boxes. Come on ahead, yep. Yes, come on ahead. That's great. Two volunteers. Now, the thing is, we have to decide which is the boy's box and which is the girl's box. Let's have a look at them and see if we can decide this. Birds, you say. Right, right. You'd like to show us this. What, 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 what can you see in this box? Show, show us a, a hat. A hat? What kind of hat is it? Angry birds. An angry bird's hat. What else have we got in here? Um, a car. A car. A towel. A towel. Well, it's your face glove that could be very useful to somebody. What else have we got? A Right. Yeah, a little some game. Cards. Some cards, yeah. So you've got lots of things in there. What's in the girls' box? Should you find out what's in the girls' box? Um, uh, what have we got in here? Mm -hmm. We've got a whole thing. You can take some things out. So we've got that's a pencil case. 
Again, thank you for coming and helping me today. That's great. So we can see all the different kinds of things that can go into shoeboxes and some examples of things that people can put in them. And we would like to encourage people over the next month or so to be involved in this so that we can be part of Operation Christmas Child for 2014. Um, I'm going to ask the children now to leave for junior church and uh, Tim will come up and give us the announcements. like to add to the welcome you received from Stephen and just to run through the announcements for the week ahead. This evening we meet again at 7 and Drew Steele will be continuing our You've Got Mail series. And apologies it's not on the slide but after the service at 8.30 there's Vine Coffee in the cabin. So if you're over 18 and you want to go to I think it's the, the Great British or the Great Windsor Bake Off theme tonight, um, you're welcome to go to that. Uh, tomorrow evening at 7 o'clock our Grief Encounters course continues in number 14. Tuesday morning, 10.15, it's Good Book Club, and do remember the elders as they meet on Tuesday evening. Wednesday evening, we have our first small groups of the new season in various locations, and hopefully you have received information about that over the previous weeks. If you haven't and you'd like to know where your nearest small group is, please do ask any of us afterwards. Thursday morning at 10.15, it's Parent and Toddler Group. Um, 7.30, Baptism Membership Class. Now, at present, there isn't anybody confirmed for that, so uh, do, if you're interested in that, no, it's not happening. If somebody wants to come, come and talk to Trevor, and you maybe want to try and bring someone else as well. Um, as well. Not that it's so, it'd be fine to be with Trevor anyway. <laughs> so if you have any doubts about it, speak to Trevor as to whether it's happening this Thursday night. Um, Friday evening, 9 o'clock, 5 aside football. Next Sunday morning, 10.15, transit with breakfast. Our morning service at 10.30, and again, Alan will be speaking then. Next Sunday evening, we have our praise service, engaged in worship, and Claire will be meeting in the cabin. Junior Church, there's a parent information session to clue you into what goes on in Junior Church and all the wonderful resources available to help parents continue the conversation about faith and character at home. So there's going to be two identical 10-minute sessions held after the morning service in the cabin for 10 minutes on Sundays the 19th and 26th of October. So do please try and get along to one of those. Do sign your kids out before you go over there. So perhaps you want to split up as parents to do that. Election of Deacons, as we announced, and as we emailed members during the week, we have six vacancies to fill, so we need members to propose and second nominations. To be eligible, the person has to be a member for two years and agreeable to stand, and you should have received a list of those that are eligible. Please send me your nominations by 5pm on Friday the 7th of November. Uh, Printed copies of the new Missionary Prayer Digest are available in the foyer, and if you're a subscriber, ABCI magazines are available for collection at the back by subscribers. And those are all the announcements and your offering will now be received. Let's pray together. (coughs) Oh, we thank you for the grace that you have shown us. We thank you for your goodness to us. And we pray that your love would help us to show love to other people as well. We thank you for the work of Operation Christmas Child. We thank you for the the work that they've done for the lives that have been touched by that operation. And we pray that as we partake in that, that we would be able to to see how you can work in people's lives. 
Thank you that you are sovereign and thank you that you are able to reach people with even a simple thing like a shoebox. We pray for the work of the Samaritan's Purse as well, particularly at the moment as they're working with people who are suffering with the Ebola outbreak. We pray for those people that you would bring them comfort. And we pray that you would bring comfort as well to the people who are working with the Ebola sufferers, that you would bring them strength and courage. And thank you for their commitment to that. Lord, when we look around things that are happening in the world, we realize that we are powerless in the face of so many things. And we can only ask you to intervene and to help. We pray that you be with the family today of Alan Henning and pray that you would be with that whole situation in the Middle East. I pray that you'd help us to be outward looking in what we do, that you'd help us to see beyond ourselves, beyond even the confines of our own church, that you'd help us to be able to look out and see what you can do in the world. We thank you for people from this church who have gone out and who are serving you overseas. I want to pray this morning especially for Lord Jane and Ho. We thank you for their commitment to the work in Japan. We thank you that they're settling at the moment in Sondai, that their outreach to students is going well. We pray for their student cafe and also for the barbecue that they're planning today. We thank you that as they make contact with neighbours that they're able to bring people in contact with you. We thank you for how Joseph is settling in and learning Japanese. And we just pray that you would bless their work, that you would help it to grow and that you would show them the direction you want them to take. We pray for our own country as well. We realise that 20 years after the ceasefire, we are still a country in need of healing. We pray that you would bring healing to our country and that you would help us to be part of that process, that you would give us the courage we need, that you would give us the love and the compassion that we need to be able to reach out to others here. We pray for our church here and we thank you for everything that that brings to us. We thank you for the enrichment it brings to our lives. We thank you for the teaching. We thank you for the fellowship that we're able to enjoy here. We pray for David, our pastor, at the moment, and thank you that he is able to take time and sabbatical to reflect and to rest. We pray that you'd help him and that you'd be with him, that he would have a a great time on his sabbatical. We pray for him this weekend in Spain with Glenn, and I pray that they would have a, a good time together there. We pray for Helen Jeffrey at the moment and also for Dorothy who's looking after her. And we pray that you be close to all those who are in need of you, people whose needs are spoken and unspoken. And we pray that as a church community we'll be able to draw alongside people, that you'd give us the sensitivity, that you'd give us the ability to see how to help and when to help, and that you'd help us to be a support to each other. We thank you for the work that goes on in the church, even looking at what's happening in the incoming week. We think of Grief Encounters and the Goodwood Club and all the youth work that's going on for the work in Sunday School and Transit and Clay. We thank you for all of these things, for all of these ministries. And thank you for all the people who are committed to them and dedicated to them. And pray that you would work through each one of them. We thank you that in everything we do, that in our lives, and in our church, that it's your grace that sustains us. And we pray that we would always have that in our minds. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We're now going to stand and sing two more songs that remind us of God's grace to us.
The first is a Keith Getty song, God of Grace. And this song explores just how amazing the grace of God is in its manifestation through Jesus and how this grace sustains us. The second song is Matt Marriage, Your Grace is Enough, which communicates our longing for God's grace in our lives and implores God to show his favour on us. All these things, I suppose, come together. When we look at this, and I want to look at one last verse here from Psalm 103, we look at things that all go together. God's forgiveness, we've thought about that already today. His mercy to us, his grace, his love, his compassion. And all these things go together. And these are things we're going to sing about now as well as we contemplate God's grace, as we reflect on it, as we meditate on it. And after this, I'm going to hand over to Alan, who's going to speak to us today. So we're going to stand and sing two songs, God of Grace and Your Grace is Enough.
towards us. And we pray now for Alan that as he speaks to us, that you will speak through him and that you will be transforming each of our lives as we listen to what he has to say. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, thanks for the welcome. It's uh, nice to be here this morning and uh, here with you for the next three Sundays, God willing. And uh, thank you to David in his absence and to the elders for the invitation just to, to share with you these three weeks. It would have been four Sundays in a row, actually, but uh, I'm actually going to be here on the last Saturday of the month uh, where my daughter is getting married. And uh, I just sort of thought that maybe with a, a wedding on the Saturday, it might have been a little much, a little bit of a stretch uh, to be able to preach here on the Sunday morning as, as well. But it's good to be here, and uh, it's perhaps, um, there's a little, a little bit of irony which has just dawned on me that the story I want to look at over the next three Sundays uh, is a story about a, a young man who went away into a far country. And as I was thinking about this just really in the last day or so, I realized that uh, I'm doing this while your pastor, who as a young man has gone away into a far country, but uh, the circumstances are somewhat different. I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 15, if you would. Luke chapter 15, I'm going to read the first couple of verses, and I'm going to read from verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Stephen has already been uh, bringing the theme of grace very much to uh, the fore, bringing it to our minds this morning. And the story we're going to read, this very familiar story, is a story about grace. So Luke chapter 15, and uh, beginning at verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. We'll go down to verse 11. Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. 
And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he, but he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother, was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. It's probably about 30 years ago since uh, Floyd McClung, one of the early leaders in Youth of the Mission, wrote a little book called The Father Heart of God. And in the book, he tells the story of a young man who had grown up in a, a very uh, remote uh, and uninteresting village in <coughs> Thailand. Uh, he'd actually grown up in a Christian family in that little village community. His name was Sawat. He found that village life was dull. And so uh, he headed for the big city, he headed for Bangkok. And uh, to put it briefly, he got into really quite a sordid and evil lifestyle living in Bangkok. He prospered for a while, became very wealthy, very successful in what he was doing. Um, But eventually the bottom sort of fell out of his world and he ended up living beside a rubbish dump somewhere around the city of Bangkok. When he left home in the little village to go to Bangkok, the last words that his father had spoken to him were, I am waiting for you. And as Sawat sat beside the rubbish dump reflecting on his life and aware of the disgrace that he'd caused his family uh, because he had been involved in some reprehensible behavior in the city of Bangkok, he reflected on those words. And he wondered whether they would still be true. All very well for his father to say those words when Sawat was heading out. But now that he'd been away and now that he'd been involved in the things that he'd been involved with, could it still possibly be true that his father would still be waiting for him? He dishonored the family name. And so he decided he would write a letter, and in the letter he asked for his father's forgiveness. He told his father that he would catch a train, and the train would be coming uh, through the, the village in Thailand, And if his father was still waiting for him, as he said he would, he was to tie a little piece of white cloth on a tree on the front of their house. And the closer the train got to the village, the more anxious Sawat became. What if his father did not want him back? What if the things which Sawat had done were just too disgraceful to be forgiven? What if there was nothing on the tree? He became very nervous as the train got closer to the village. And he actually asked a fellow passenger who noticed his agitation, he asked him to watch out for him, told him the story, and he said, would you watch? And what did the passenger see as the train came through that little village? Well, he saw that the whole whole tree was covered in little pieces of white cloth. And he saw that there was an old man dancing up and down, waving a piece of white cloth. And when eventually the train came to a stop and the boy Sawat got off the train, 
his father was in fact waiting for him, threw his arms around him, and he said to him with tears of joy, I've been waiting for you. It's a story that reflects the story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, doesn't it? A wayward father, and a, a wayward son rather, and, and a waiting father with a welcome that is far more than the wayward son could ever deserve. And that's how we think of this story of what we've, we've come to know it as the story of the prodigal son. Probably uh, one of the best known, if not the best known, of all of the stories that Jesus told. Uh, it has been celebrated in works of art, like, for example, the, the work of art that you can see on the wall behind me, uh, which is Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal son. Charles Dickens is reported to have said that it was the finest short story ever written. The, the sad thing about that statement that Charles Dickens apparently made is that no one's actually ever been able to find exactly when he made it or where he made it. So perhaps he didn't make it at all and it was just somebody else who thought that that's what he would have said if he had been talking about it. It doesn't really matter. It is, it is a wonderful story. And on a more modern note, perhaps a more, much more contemporary note, um, Mumford and Sons have actually alluded to the song, uh, alluded to, the, to the, the story in their song, Roll Away Your Stone. There's a couple of lines in there that say, it's not the long walk home that will change this heart, but the welcome I receive with the restart. And I think that's an allusion to, to this story. And it's a wonderful story. It's a story of love. It's a story of hope. It's a story of grace. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story that says no matter where you have been and no, matter how, and no matter what you have done, no matter how far away from God you have got, there is a heavenly Father who is waiting to forgive you and he's waiting to welcome you back in a way which you couldn't imagine and in a way which you certainly don't deserve. It's a wonderful story. However, there's more to it than that. And you've probably heard people preach. In fact, I know somebody spoke about this story just two or three weeks ago here in the church. It's always interesting uh, when, when you're lining up to speak somewhere and somebody says, oh, by the way, that thing that you're going to speak about for those next three Sundays, someone was here speaking about it uh, last week. I, I'm going to press ahead regardless. But you've probably heard, you've probably heard many stories or many, many sermons preached on the subject of the prodigal son. And I dare say that many of the, many of the sermons that you've heard preached on it Stop at verse 24. Look at verse 24. They began to celebrate. And many of the preachers who preached about this story down through the years have stopped there and they haven't gone to verse 25 and the little bit that remains. Not quite sure what to do with that. And it seems to me as I've reflected on this story quite a bit over the past few years, it seems to me that if you, if you miss that last bit of the story from verse 25 down to verse 32, you're actually missing what I believe is the main punchline of the story. Because while the story of the return of the prodigal son, what you see in the picture here, is heartwarming and it's encouraging and it's welcoming and it talks to us about grace and it extends grace to all of us who've wandered away at one time or another, it seems to me that when Jesus originally told this story, Given the audience that he was speaking to, the reaction that was provoked was probably not one where everybody was saying, wasn't that just a lovely story? That's one of the, the nicest short stories that I've ever read or that I've ever heard. I don't think people were reacting like that. When Jesus told this story, I think the first listeners 
would have found it intensely provocative. And some of them, at least, would have found it quite convicting. You see, it's not just the story of the prodigal son. It is actually a tale of two sons. There's the younger son that everybody talks about, that everybody thinks about, the one who goes away on on his journey. We're going to think about it a little bit this morning. He goes away and wastes a third of the family wealth before eventually coming back. But there's this other son, this older son, who stays at home, who does his duty, who never disobeys his father's commands, who keeps the farm running. If there's going to be one member of the family who's, who's running off wasting the family fortune, there's going to be somebody there to safeguard what's left. And that's the older brother. He's the one that we tend not to think about. And as I say, if we don't think about him, I think we've missed the point somewhat. Now, you notice in Luke 15 that this is actually the third of three pictures that Jesus paints in the chapter. The first one uh, is is where he asks us to imagine, or he asks his audience to imagine a shepherd who has 100 sheep and loses one of them. And the shepherd doesn't say, do you know, it doesn't matter that I've lost that one sheep. There's still 99 others. I'm, I'm fine with those. Just because the sheep is lost doesn't mean it's lost its value. And so the shepherd will go and he'll look for it and he'll hunt for it until he finds it. And when he finds it, there's great rejoicing. He's glad. He brings the neighbors in. They throw a party. They have a great celebration. What was lost has been found again. And then Jesus says, well, imagine a woman and she's got 10 little pieces of silver and she loses one of them. What's she going to say? It doesn't matter. I've got nine more. I mean, you, you ladies, you know, let's imagine that you get home today at lunchtime and you notice that, that an earring, I say a pearl earring, is dropped out of your ear somewhere. You know, and you're not quite sure. You're pretty sure that you had it when you, were, when you were singing the closing hymn. You didn't have it when you got home. You know, you're not just going to say, well, it doesn't matter. There's plenty more pearl earrings where that one came from. You're maybe going to get back in your car. You're going to get down here. You're going to retrace your steps. You're going to look for it. Just because it's lost doesn't mean it's lost its value. And Jesus tells, paints that picture. He, he, he imagines this woman who searches until she finds what she has lost. When she's found what she has lost, she gathers the neighbors. There's a celebration because it's great. Something has, has been lost and now it's been found again. And you'll notice at the end of both of those pictures, first of all in verse 7 and then in verse 10, Jesus draws a lesson from that. He says in verse 7, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons, righteous persons who need no repentance. And then in verse 10, there's more joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So you see there's a pattern. Something is lost. You look for it until it's found because it's still valuable. When you find it, there's great rejoicing. And the same way that there's great rejoicing over the lost thing that's been found, there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. There's rejoicing in the presence of God over one sinner who repents. And when you come to the third story, where the ratio has gone from 1 in 100 to 1 in 10, down to 1 in 2, and we're no longer talking about sheep or coins, but we're talking about sons, You expect a similar kind of thing to happen. A son is lost. A son is found. There's a great celebration because the son has come back. And you expect that when Jesus is told that, when you get to verse 25, what you really expect to read is, in the same way, there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over whatever number of sinners who don't need any repentance. But this time the conclusion is different. 
And that's why I think we need to take notice of this, of this older brother. And I think the significance of the older brother is highlighted when we go back to the very beginning of the chapter. Now, notice I'm kind of working backwards, and eventually we'll get into the story itself. Uh, But when you go to the very beginning of the chapter, the first two verses, notice the setting of it. The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man teaches, uh, receives sinners, rather, and eats with them. These people... Righteous, diligent, obedient, and as far as they thought they could be, could not understand why Jesus would spend time mixing with sinners. Not only did Jesus mix with sinners, but Jesus shared food with sinners. He welcomed them to his table. I can remember when we moved back from living in Switzerland and moved back to Northern Ireland, one of the things we noticed that was slightly different, uh, although we lived in Northern Ireland before we went to Switzerland, there's something, when, you, when you've lived away, you, you, you become a little different, you become used to different customs. And, and I remember noticing that one of the differences was, was the way people eat food. Um, we used to have uh, elders gatherings uh, in our church in Switzerland, and you know, we would maybe spend quite a long time eating a meal together and just eat eat at a leisurely leisurely pace. And I I remember having an evening, sort of an extended evening with with the elders in Port Stewart. And uh, the idea was that we would eat first, and then we'd spend the evening, you know, talking and praying and thinking and so on. And uh, we ordered in from a Chinese restaurant. And we stood, that's the key word, we stood in the kitchen. And we gobbled this, this food. And there's something, I hope I'm not offending people, but there's something about Northern Ireland, and we just sort of gobble this stuff down as quickly as we possibly can. Uh, it, 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 you know, and then we get, on, we get on with whatever else is supposed to follow. Interestingly, again, during our time when we lived in Switzerland, we, we had neighbors who lived upstairs above us in, in the apartment block where we were. And the husband was North African, Tunisian, I think he was. And on a couple of occasions, I think, they invited us to, to share a a North African meal with couscous. And he, he worked on it. He, he spent pretty much the whole of the day in advance preparing, I think there were seven, seven different things, you know, vegetables and meat and all of this, and, and then all of the couscous. Uh, and, and the idea was that rather than, than just sort of certainly stand around and gobble it as quickly as you possibly could and then just get on with the conversation or something like that, we sat around a table. We didn't even have individual plates, but there's this great big pile of food in the middle of the, in a plate in the middle of the table. And we all ate. I think they, they, uh, they allowed us to use spoons rather than just jump in with our hands. But it's a very different, very different approach to eating. And I think that's probably much more the kind of style of eating that Jesus was used to when he, when he welcomed these people to his table. And you realize that when you're going to actually share food in that way and dip your hand into the same dish as the people that you're sharing with, it's actually it's a gesture of much deeper fellowship than simply sat, standing in a corner of a room eating a sandwich. Jesus welcomed these people. And the Pharisees who were so dutiful and the scribes who studied the law and all of its detail and who tried to observe it in in all kinds of incredibly detailed ways, they could not understand this. They were the ones who thought they could say, we've never disobeyed, we've never done anything wrong, we've always done our duty, we've slaved away here doing our duty, and yet you never even killed a young goat for us. They didn't get it. 
And Jesus tells these stories for their benefit so that they will realize that just because something or someone is lost doesn't mean it's lost its value. Just because somebody, like a tax collector or one of the other sort of nondescript sinners that, that Luke talks about, just because they're lost, just because they've got away from God, does not mean that they've lost their value. The Pharisees needed to hear that. And so Jesus tells these stories, and he tells a story about this younger son. Now, over the next three Sundays, starting now, uh, we're going to be thinking about the three characters in the story, because it's not just the prodigal son, it's a tale of two sons, but it's also a tale of their father. And over the three Sundays, we're going we're to take a little bit of time to look at each of the three characters in turn. Uh, the way the story evolves, and you can, you can see this, in the first part of the story, the spotlight is mainly on the story of the younger son and his journey away from home and then his journey back. The middle part of the story has its focus mainly on the father. How is the father going to respond when the younger son comes back? And the final part of the story has the spotlight on the older son who's refusing to come in. And the father pleads with him. Why is the older son behaving like this? Will he ever come in? Will he listen to his father and respond to his invitation? Those are the three that we're going to look at. And today, we're going to think about the story of the younger son. And I think what the, son, what the younger son tells us is that he tells us something about the reach of grace. Just how far does grace reach? Now, before we can understand that, we need to understand something about this. The fact that sin will cost you more than you plan to pay. His story falls into two parts. There's his journey away. He obviously makes his decision to leave home. He travels home to a far country and he wastes uh, the inheritance, presumably a third of the inheritance according to Jewish law. He wastes that uh, section of his inheritance in what Jesus describes as reckless living. And in the second part of his story, he comes back and, and obviously discovers a welcome. But let's think for a moment about that first part of the story. When you see him in a pigsty, you, you realize that this is not what he had in mind when he left. What he had in mind when he left was freedom. Freedom from the restrictions of living at home. Maybe he didn't get on with his older brother. In some senses, who would have blamed him? Maybe he didn't get on with him. Maybe he just found it was all a bit boring. Maybe the whole idea of spending the rest of his life just living on this farm, just doing his duty on the farm, really didn't appeal to him. But on the other hand, the opportunity to cash in on his inheritance while his father was still alive, which was a very uh, disrespectful thing to, to want to do, that prospect of cashing in on his inheritance and being able to travel as far away, both physically and no doubt spiritually and relationally, from home as he possibly could, that appealed to him. Freedom. He's going to have a blast. Life is going to be one unending party. With this freedom, and the freedom that's backed up with considerable wealth, he's going to be able to do whatever he wants to do. He's going to be able to buy whatever he wants to buy. His freedom would have no limits. He wasn't expecting to end up in a pigsty. And there's something important for us to realize here. That boy, or that young man, was free to make choices about how he would live his life. 
He was free, even though uh, it was an extremely disrespectful thing, which we'll talk more about next week. He was free to ask for his inheritance. He was lucky to get it. But when he had it, he was free to, to go wherever he wanted. He was free to adopt whatever lifestyle he wanted to adopt. He was free to do whatever he wanted to do. What he was not free to do was to prevent the consequences of his choices. Now, it's important for us to understand that. We are free to make certain choices. What we do, where we go, how we live. We are not free to determine which of the consequences will eventually destroy us or may eventually destroy us. I, I say that it's not exclusively to those of you who are younger, but, but I think there's a particular emphasis to those of you who are younger. And, you know, you're, you're getting to a stage in life where, where you've got more freedom. You've got the opportunity of, of making more choices about how you're going to live, where you're going to go, what you're going to do, who you're going to associate with. You have more freedom to make those choices. And I think there's something about being young that, where you almost have a feeling of indestructibility. I can do whatever I want, and even if something goes a little bit wrong, I'm sure I will have the opportunity to put it right. You're free to make choices. And, and as you get older and your parents begin to maybe loosen that ironclad grip on your life, as you begin to make those choices, will you remember this? That, that you may be free to make choices, but you are not free to determine the consequences of the choices that you make. And the sobering thing about the first part of the younger, the younger son's story is that his behavior, his sinful behavior, because that's what it was, ended up costing him more than he had ever planned to pay. Sin does that. It costs us more than we ever planned to pay. We need to say something, though, about the nature of sin. It's easy to look at him and say, well, you know, reckless lifestyle. Jesus just calls it a reckless lifestyle. The older, older brother later in the story uh, says that, that the younger brother had, had wasted the inheritance on, on prostitutes and, and so on. Um, he, Jesus doesn't go into an awful lot of detail about ex exactly what, what is involved here, but it, it's a wild and reckless uh, lifestyle. And it's probably not very difficult for us to, to maybe imagine some of the things that he did, the way, some of the ways that he behaved. But, but it's important for us to understand that his sinful behavior did not start with a wild and reckless lifestyle. I think we're really good in Northern Ireland evangelical circles at identifying certain sins. The public scandalous ones. I remember being struck, and again, this is one of those kind of uh, reverse culture shock things. I remember being struck and moving back to Northern Ireland. You listen to people talk about how they'd come to faith, and they would say something, well, of course, I knew I was a sinner. It wasn't that I was guilty of any big sins, they would say. I mean, I didn't dance, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink alcohol. And you think to yourself, well, that's very interesting, because 
Dancing actually, well, David danced in the Bible. Didn't seem to be anything too much wrong with dancing for joy before the Lord. Smoking's not actually mentioned in the Bible. And since we're among Baptists, I mean, let's talk about Charles Spurgeon if you want to talk about smoking. Not advocating it, by the way. Please don't misunderstand me. And in terms of alcohol, well, did Jesus not turn water into wine at a wedding? And so somehow those, those three things that seem to be at the top of many people's lists, well, actually the Bible talks about them and, you know, either doesn't talk about them or talks about them in quite different ways. But my point is that we're good at, at picking out the scandalous public sins. And we have our league tables of sins and we have our lists. And woe betide somebody who's guilty of, you know, getting involved in one of the, one of the big sins that's at the top of the league table. Sin starts not with scandalous behavior. Sin starts with a rejection of the Father. That's what happens here in the story. This boy says to his father, I want you to give me the inheritance, the share of the inheritance that's mine. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, who's a scholar who's studied this in detail, says that culturally, that was pretty much the same thing as saying to his father, Father, I wish you were dead. He just wanted his father's stuff. He didn't want his father. And that's what sin is. And I think it's very important that we understand that. And it'll become clearer when we look at the older brother in a couple of weeks' time. And I think it, it, it's, it, it's much more troubling, isn't it? Because some of us may be, you know, pretty clean on the outside. Some of us may say, well, you'd never get me doing those kind of things that some of those other people do. But if we begin to think of sin not just as reckless behavior, but actually as a rejection, fundamentally as a rejection of God, and saying to God, I don't want you, I simply want the stuff that you have to give me. If that's what sin is, then a lot of the rest of us need to get a little bit uncomfortable because who among us has not said that to God at one time or the other? Who among us has not lived like that at one time or the other? That's where it starts, take him to pigsty. Because sin costs more than, we're pla- than we plan to pay. But here's the good news part of the story. He comes back. And we realize that grace can give us more than we ever deserve. This journey back is a, takes a while to get, to get going, doesn't it? You notice that uh, when he's spent his fortune... Everything is gone. There's a famine. And uh, when you don't have very much and then there's a famine, you've no reserves to fall back on. And uh, things become fairly disastrous for him when he has to hire himself out to work, at a, to work for a, a, a pig farmer. He's so hungry that he could actually have eaten the food that the pigs ate. It doesn't say that he actually did eat it, but he, he would love to have eaten the pig's food. And, says Jesus, nobody gave him anything to eat. And he's starving. And eventually, as he's lying there starving, he comes to himself. Reality dawns on him in verse 17. And I think that's interesting because reality could have dawned on him. It doesn't dawn on him uh, at the end of verse 14, for example. If you look at verse 14, when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. Why did he not go home then? Well, that's what we're like, isn't it? We, we, we want to try to find our own solution as long as we possibly can. And he tries to find his own solution, so his own solution is going out and working for the pig farmer. But it's only when even that fails that he comes to himself in verse 17 
and he begins to think about home. doesn't think about how loving his father is, or how kind his father is, or how wonderful the warmth would be uh, to, to be living at home again. He thinks about the food in his father's house, and he realizes, you know, he said, There's, there are these hired servants, just casual laborers who turn up and do a day's work, and my father pays them. He said, they have got far more to eat than they need. And here I am. He's a son after all. And I'm lying here in this pigsty, and I'm starving, and there's nobody giving me anything to eat. And he comes up with a plan, and he decides that he's going to head home. And he comes up with this little speech that he's going to make to his father. It's interesting that he, he maps the speech out, but when he gets there, he never actually gets to complete the speech. And you wonder what's going on in his mind. And he says, I'll go home, and I'll say to my father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Just make me one of your hired servants. And some people have thought that uh, what's going on in his mind is that he still wants to be in control of his own deliverance. So if he goes back to his father and he says, make me one of your hired servants, he's not actually fully being restored into the family. He's there on his own terms. Uh, if he's a hired servant, he's still going to have a little bit of income. Maybe he's going to be able to pay back some of his debt. I think it's more likely that he just doesn't think that there's really going to be much of a welcome for him back as a son. I think he probably feels that he has forfeited his sonship. And so he's going to go to his father. He's going to confess what he has done to his father. And he's going to say, look, make me one of your hired servants. That will be enough for me. Either way, whichever of those two scenarios, whether he's trying to be in control of his own salvation, whether he just simply cannot bring himself to believe that his father would possibly welcome him back, Either way, grace is not on his radar. Grace is not on his radar. Now, it's time for us to define what we mean by this. It's one of those words, isn't it? One of those Christian words that everybody uses. We sing it in songs and so on. We've already begun to dig into some of it this morning. But some of you will remember, uh, growing up in Sunday school, you remember the little definition that you got, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense right? Some of you remember that? A few heads are nodding of uh, various shades of, of hair coloring, uh, but a uh, few people remember it. I think it's a, good, it's a good definition. Grace is the unearned love of God that comes to us through Jesus and His sacrifice on the cross. Let me give you another definition that I think fits really well with this story. Grace is unconditional kindness given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost. Unconditional kindness given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost. There was none of that in the pigsty. There was none of that among the people that this, that this young man looked to when he was starving and nobody would give him anything. There, there was nothing, not, not, none of that kind of favor uh, and acceptance and love was expressed. And as he comes home, that kind of grace, that kind of acceptance, that kind of love, it, it's not, on, it's, it, it's not on, his, on his radar at all. He's, he's not thinking about it. And yet that's exactly what he receives. He receives unconditional kindness given to an undeserving recipient at an uncomfortable cost. And you know, when you put it like that, grace seems like a wonderful thing. But yet, there are people who struggle to accept grace. And it seems to me there's at least a couple of reasons why people struggle to accept grace. Some people struggle to accept grace because of despair. 
And their language is, because of what I have done, because of where I have been, because of the things that I'm ashamed of, there is no way that even the grace of God could reach me. I'll just have to settle for being one of the hired servants. And there may be somebody here in, in the room this morning, and, and that's you, that's the reason that you're not a Christian, is because you simply think, well, I've done things, I've said things, I've been places, and I'm so ashamed. Grace may be for 99% of the other people in this room, but grace could not be for me. Sometimes it's despair that keeps us from it. And sometimes it's pride that keeps us from it. Because if grace is free, unearned, unconditional kindness given to an undeserving recipient, do you know what? You've actually got to take the place as an undeserving recipient if you're going to receive it. And there are two lots of people who end up outside the Father's house. One is the people who are so absorbed in their own guilt that they cannot look up sufficiently to see the grace that is offered through Jesus Christ. And the other lot of people who are outside the Father's house are the people who think they don't need it. And so they stay outside in their pride. This is what this story is about. It's about the grace of God. And it's not just the story that's about the grace of God. The setting of the story is about the grace of God. Why is Jesus welcoming sinners and tax collectors and all kinds of abominable people, as, as we would probably regard them, and as the Pharisees and the scribes definitely regarded them. Why is Jesus spending time with these people? Why does he bother with these people? They don't deserve it. It's because of grace. It's because of unconditional kindness that's given to undeserving recipients at an uncomfortable cost. And it's not just the story or the setting of the story that speaks about grace. It's the whole mission of Jesus who comes to this earth, who, who, who goes around doing good and healing and teaching, and all the way heading to Jerusalem. Very important in Luke's gospel. Heading to Jerusalem to lay down his life, where he's going to suffer as a sacrifice for sin. He's going to be raised again. He's going to commission his disciples. He's going to say, now you're to go and you're to say that there is forgiveness in my name. It's all about grace this grace that comes to us. And grace is the heart of God towards people. People who have spat on his face, people who have told them that they don't want them, they only want the stuff that he can give them. Grace is God's heart towards those people. Grace is God's heart towards me. Grace is God's heart towards you. Incredible. Wonderful. I've been reading recently a little book by Henry Nouwen. It's called uh, The Return of the Prodigal Son. He was inspired by this, this painting of, of Rembrandt. And the little book is a reflection on some of Nouwen's own life and his own spiritual journey. It's a reflection on aspects of the painting and Rembrandt's story. And, of course, it's a reflection on the story in, in Luke. And I've been enjoying the book. And I would, I would say that there have been uh, some bits of the book that caused my evangelical eyebrows to, to, to rise somewhat. Uh, but at the same time, I found that there's some very rich observations that he makes and some very thought-provoking reflections. Let me, let me read this just as I, as I bring this to a close. One bit of it. He says, One of the greatest challenges of the spiritual life 
is to receive God's forgiveness. There's something in us humans that keeps us clinging to our sins and prevents us from letting God erase our past and offer us a completely new beginning. Sometimes it even seems as though I want to prove to God that my darkness is too great to overcome. While God wants to restore me to the full dignity of sonship, I keep insisting that I will settle for being a hired servant. The best way for some of us this morning to say that we believe in the grace of God and to honor and glorify the grace of God is actually to receive that grace. Maybe for the first time. Maybe for the 100th time that we've wandered away to receive that grace. Because here is a story about a father. And in the words of that much more modern story that we read at the beginning from Floyd McClung, a father whose message to us is this, I am waiting for you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this wonderful story. And we thank you for the way it it has revealed your heart, that it demonstrates the reach of your grace, the reach of your love for us. And Lord, as we bring our time together to a close, we ask that your Spirit would apply this in the way that we need it to be applied. Lord, that we would believe in your grace, that we would believe that we need it. We wouldn't be so proud as to think that we don't need it. But Lord, that none of us would be so despairing to think that your grace can't reach us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Alan, for those challenging words for us this morning. We're going to finish today's service pretty much as we began by standing to sing uh, to God, to praise God, and we're going to sing the words of Amazing Grace. Let's stand together to sing.
I wonder if we can remain standing and just use the words of this benediction and if we say it together, say it to each other as we finish today's service. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace.